0: Hey, what's up? It's Jeff Staple. Just as an FYI, this week's episode of the Business of Hype of WeWork was recorded a few months ago prior to all the recent IPO news that's been swirling around in the media as of late. So regardless of what eventually happens to WeWork, we still felt that sharing all the learnings and gems from this interview was the right thing to do. All right, let's get into this week's episode. From Beast and Hype Radio, I am Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. You know, on The Business of Hype, it's not just about designers and brand owners that are behind your favorite products and drops. I have the honor of being able to cross paths with some very interesting individuals and occasionally share those moments with you, the listener. I love how some people, no matter what field they're in, whether it's music, food, art, advertising, or fashion, they have this ripple effect to inspire all culture with no boundaries. And that's my definition of a true visionary. Today, we have on the show a person who has created something that actually allows other creators to create on, or more accurately, create in. After all, creatives need a good home, a gathering place where they can feel inspired, connected, yet still be able to get work done. I mean, free coffee of course helps, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's hard to find a place with good work vibes. Any Joe can get a great big space, fill it with desks, and invite people to come work. And maybe someone smarter can even think of investing in design elements like nice furniture, good lighting, reasonable rates. But still, not any Joe can create WeWork. There's a select few people on this planet that recognize how a simple concept can be tweaked a little bit and done better, and then in doing so, transform the world. So you'd think the founder of this company grew up with a trust fund or a real estate portfolio, right? You'd be surprised to hear that he ate mayo sandwiches while toiling away as a struggling architect just 10 years ago. And to this day, he still shudders at the thought of splurging on a business class plane ticket. So listen up as Miguel McKelvey, the co founder and chief culture officer of the We Company, takes us down memory lane as he breaks down what it took to create WeWork and what it takes to make a global empire. I am Miguel
1: McKelvey. I'm the co founder of WeWork. Well, actually, the We Company. Uh, oh, yeah.
0: You had I'm, to correct yourself.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm getting used to saying it because it's new and right. it feels like a
0: evolution. So now we work is like a division of the We Company.
1: Yeah. And I think it's always been mm. conceptually a division because mm. when we started, we had the intent to be more holistic in our approach to. Yeah. Um, supporting people in the world who are trying to become more connected and mm-hmm. uh, more conscious. And so it's a fulfillment of some of an intent that right. is, you know, nine years old. It just right. happens to be that we're executing on it now.
0: It's almost like that was the first seed. Like We Company was the first seed. Then you got sort of like heavy into WeWork. But now it's like, let's go back to what we were originally trying to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think when we started it was an empathetic response to the community that we were a part of. And mm-hmm. that was really holistic. It was like, wow, there's so many people in the world who are doing great work and they're passionate and they're excited about, you know, bringing something to the world, but they're disconnected and they're not served by many of the sort of institutional functions like real estate or, you know, hospitality, offices, or yeah. offices hotels, all these um, restaurants, mm-hmm. you know. And so that intent from the start was much more like just looking around and saying, what could we be a part of that we could improve and make the experience feel more connective? Yeah, right. And there was at the time, I mean, you know, if you look back, Where we were, there was a, you know, much more like the clubs were all about bottle service and the velvet rope. And like there was a lot of exclusivity in hotels. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was a vibe that we wanted to go against. We wanted to be, say, inclusive and we can all be a part of this. And you can look at that in other dimensions as well, even in entrepreneurship. The Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship story at the time was all about, you know, the, Two tech entrepreneurs yeah, the who, like, few. Yeah, yeah. who like are like qualified to, you know, if you're going to get into a incubator program, you have to be like the best Selected, of the best. Yeah, and right. You have to have a business that's going to be a multi-billion dollar business or else you're not even relevant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas we were like, no way, there's all these cool people doing all kinds of things that don't have a hockey stick Yeah, growth, Mm -hmm. but they're doing really cool stuff. I mean, yourself included. And we wanted to respect that whole community of people saying, we want to do something we think is meaningful, Mm -hmm. not just because it has
0: a, you know, that billion dollar like destination. Right. So I never like to assume that everyone who listens to my show, like knows everything about everyone. Sure. So let's pretend someone doesn't even know what co-working is or or that concept. They just, they've been clocking in and out nine to five, going to their cubicle for the last two decades of their life. What are you doing on a very base level?
1: Well, on a basic level, we're trying to respond to that fundamental human need Mm -hmm. for connection, for the opportunity to see someone face to face and make a connection that leads to something. And we don't know what that something is. We don't believe that we determine it but we believe that we all need those opportunities to bump up against each other more often mm-hmm. and to have an environment that's supportive of that. And and so when we again from those early days we were seeing this community of awesome people who we knew had something to share with each other but they didn't have the right venues for that to happen. So if you think about it in simple terms there were fundamental needs that we needed to solve practical needs for a community and if you look at workspace that's things like a desk, a window, a copy machine, you know, good internet. Mm -hmm. But then if you layer on to that, the opportunity for the people who are in that space to flow into each other in a natural way, not have to go to a networking event, Mm -hmm. but actually have a natural flow where people just, you know, share space, share their lives, share their journey. Mm -hmm. And that happens in a very natural way that... Cool things will happen. Right. Good, goodness will happen if just that opportunity is created, and so that's fundamentally what we're trying to do. But then that is empowered by a very specific execution of design elements, data, you know, study of the way people use space, so that we can make that highly efficient. Mm-hmm. And actually make it work because it's not as simple as just being like, oh, let's put a couple of couches in a room. Yeah. You know, there's and and, and so you have to work harder to really understand how do those things really happen. Mm -hmm. And because there's plenty of people who tried to make spaces that looked beautiful, great, whatever, and no one ever went into them. Yeah. You have hundreds of apartment buildings that have beautiful spaces, beautiful spaces that are empty all the time. Right. Right. So our magic was figuring out how to get people to actually use these spaces and make that feel comfortable um and
0: that's multidimensional mm-hmm. you know it kind of when you were saying that it reminds me of like you know that the CERN atomic collider where like these people in Europe are trying to like collide at it's like you're almost creating the the platform to let these collisions happen right
1: for sure and that's a that's something which i think i think that th- there is an aspiration to that which is specific in that way but then we also want to like let go of that and just say we don't know Exactly what happens when that happens, and maybe that's similar to to that collider. We don't really know the results. Yeah. Um, we think it's going to be positive, yeah, right? Or it could we be local. <laughs> exactly, that's the, <laughs> the downside, right? I think for us as humans, we're pretty sure that bumping into each other will
0: will be a good thing, <laughs> will be positive. Yeah, um,
1: but I think that's also where we have more potential is to say, you know, where are there ways that we could actually look into communities and say, what are what are those multi dimensional benefits? And that's why I think as a platform. Uh, that we're establishing we do have a lot of work to do to see where else does it go if Mm -hmm. we're more proactive in that equation
0: right um what problems what opportunities um can we address yeah there seems i bet when you like create a new we work there's like a lot of almost like feng shui involved like you know like pathways and like making sure the energy is good and stuff that doesn't really show up on like a, a p or a spreadsheet you know I bet there's a lot of that that goes into these spaces for
1: sure and that was my I mean just I'm not not to give myself credit but that was the thing that I loved the most in the early days was mm-hmm. trying to understand that thing of what just by observation what are the things that work because there are a lot of spaces that don't work and yeah. even for ourselves when we were making them we would like design them and then we people would come in and we'd be like wait why what's mm-hmm. going on there's like on a dead here?
0: spot here why is there this exactly yeah. why
1: don't people use that thing that you think would be great and uh-huh. so and that's still the work that we do i mean i'm sure we, we we fail in it sometimes but our aspiration is to get that energy flow correct you right, know right. and so we we have an idea of center of gravity which is something we developed over time and if you look at it it's someplace that you just naturally gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you get that place where you don't think about it intentionally? You don't say, oh, I need to go from A to B. And then you find yourself in this place. It's more that it just becomes a part of your natural flow. Yeah, and yeah. Th- and then that feels really good because people don't want to have intentionality. They don't think in their head, hey – I would like to go meet someone right now. No, right. Like, that's not a natural <laughs> at, at thing. At right? 3.30, I'm going to have a random meetup. <laughs> exactly. Right. No one's ever had that idea. Yeah. Um, and so that's the thing is you want it to be uh, just natural, natural, yeah. mindless, just something that happens by the way. And then you're like, oh, wow, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. Like
0: So happy right. that, that that random thing just happened. Yeah okay before we go too far back i want to just reel off some of the highlight stats of where we work is or we the we company is today like how many are there how many people like members are there like how far reaching is the, is the, the company? most
1: <laughs> interesting thing about that is that it changes so quickly every month because we're actually growing so yeah uh, and so, like, so uh, by, whenever the, by the day it's like yeah. changing Exactly. And that's a really, so it's always tough to answer that, but I think some of the fundamentals that are really important is a hundred cities. So okay. that's been, that was a real milestone, which I was, you know, blown away by is yeah. to be in a hundred cities globally, um, 27 countries. So truly global mm-hmm. and we're about to open in Africa this summer. So that will be, wow. you know, um, once we get there, that's been the, the continent that people mm-hmm. have said, you know, what's next. Yeah. Like, so Africa and then we'll go from there, but about, Depending on you know when you count, um, and how you count, we're ballpark, you know, f- half a million members across the world. Wow, um, and that that is something that you know, again, it sounds like a lot, it's like, like, like a city
0: have, it, of its like a real city.
1: And I mean, it's distributed, so you wouldn't, but, but yeah, but that, so it sounds like a lot until you think about, and I don't mean to like downgrade our accomplishment, but if you think about half a million in the context of the number of people who walk into workspaces every day, it's Mm -hmm. just a tiny, tiny, Mm -hmm. tiny fraction. So that's, that's the divide that we see is that yes, we've accomplished something awesome for half a million people when there are probably a billion that we, that we still with an empathetic response to are thinking, Wow you're still living the old way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's where we see a lot of,
0: you know, space between where we are and where we want to go. You guys are definitely good at what you do, but I also think that there had to be, like, a cultural subconscious shift of how people, like, understand the definition of work to happen at the same time so that people could even accept that, like, yeah, I don't have to go to work at a desk in a cubicle. I could work in another place. Was that, like... Did you understand that that shift was already happening when you founded WeWork? Certainly, we had great
1: timing Mm -hmm. and there was, like I said, a response to the market. So, you know, Brooklyn was a home for that shift, right? You had people who dropped out of the like corporate lifestyle and said, hey, I want to do something different. And that came in many forms. You know, it could be the person who started a restaurant or their own, you know, craft brewery or who knows? They, you know, they started doing something that that they always dreamed of doing. Mm-hmm. And they instead of waiting until that magical time, you know, that never actually happens, they just said, fuck it, I'm doing it now. Yeah. You know, and so we saw that for sure um, as something that was around us. And I think, you've, you know, you're a part of that yourself in the sense of of people who said there are different ways to approach mm-hmm. the market and there are different opportunities when you layer in. Something more to it than yeah. just trying to make money mm-hmm. you know and finding connection to culture um in a more interesting way multi layered way that's what we were responding to, and so um that's why it's always weird to be like well people that you're a business that's based on like freelancers or startups right uh-huh. I think both of those are almost like they're great, but they're not actually i mean a small business that's trying to like move the world forward in some way shouldn't just be labeled as a startup mm-hmm. because a startup is thought of as like i don't know almost this like expiring entity that if it doesn't make it it yeah. failed yeah. you know
0: it's like pigeonholing
1: us into like a small category exactly and it's wrong yeah. it's like it's a lot of those definitions we haven't found I and mean, we say creator because we haven't been able to come up with anything else but we say a creator is anyone who's you know, someone in that space, like mm-hmm. existing in that space of trying to bring something good to the world. And the form could, you know, it could come in so many different forms, but let's not try to like pigeonhole it into a certain definition that then if you somehow don't succeed um, uh, in someone
0: else's framework that you've, that you're a failure. Yeah, And I right. think that's a real problem. Right, you know? right. Um, I mean, with this success, most people might assume that you're like, the son or an heir to like a real estate development mogul or something like that right like you inherited like a hundred buildings or something and now you get to do something with it right, but, that would have helped <laughs> um, but yeah. that couldn't be further from the truth right
1: yeah well both Adam and I literally had no connections um in New York where we started let alone in the world in real estate or even in like you know wealthy families <laughs> who 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 had real estate holdings so I mean, the thing that we did have was will, but mm-hmm. we both came from backgrounds that were not in this world. We yeah. were both entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial and came from you know, communal backgrounds that led us to appreciate the need for human connection mm-hmm. and to want to facilitate it. Like, you know, actually have grown up with this feeling that we're surrounded by people every day, that we love being a part of a community and then coming to New York and feeling isolated and disconnected. Yeah. Um, so that was a, you know, having that as a, as a generator of the 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 personal need and then saying, if we feel this way, many other people feel this way. So that was a great
0: foundation. But then how do you get a building? Yeah. Do you think it helped that you guys had no idea how real estate and stuff worked in New York? Like if you knew, maybe you just would have done it like a rigmarole kind of way, you know? It's a great question. I I believe, yeah, in some
1: cases, not just for real estate, but also in a lot of the building industry, you Uh know, not knowing, not accepting how things should Should. be done was definitely a benefit to us. But, you know, the fights to get the buildings in the early days were tough. Like Mm -hmm. we literally had people who were like, found so many reasons to say that we would not be successful. And that was tough. Like we had to fight through conversations where, you know, we went very far down the line in negotiations for buildings Mm -hmm. to the extent that we had done like full design for the building. We're like ready to go and, you know, maybe our mistake because the lease wasn't signed. And then some other shareholder in that ownership structure was just like, no, we're not doing that. That's a crappy low rent. You know, that'll never succeed. That's something you do just because the market's down Mm -hmm. and like you want to fill a building, but you kick them out as soon as you can get a high credit tenant, you know, as soon as you can, Get someone who's got a lot of money in the bank um you would you would never do something like mm-hmm. that. You want a high credit you know ten year lease that yeah. is like you can bank on right you
0: want a dwayne Reed in there
1: <laughs> exactly right but so the one thing in our favor though was that when we started, we were in the you know financial crisis where there were there was a lot of lease default by mm-hmm. large companies right so it, we had a little bit of room to say, now wait a minute, like you think a high credit tenant is what you want but maybe then you're you have a single point of failure yeah all your eggs are in one basket exactly right. whereas we're diversifying that portfolio across a whole bunch of different companies in a whole bunch of different industries mm-hmm. And so maybe there's something good about that diversity. And the other part is that we saw a lot of companies on a downhill slide who are like they came out. They had to default on their lease because they downsized from 1,000 people to 200. Now they're like, what do they need? They need flexible space because they don't know what their future holds, right? Mm -hmm. So our idea was, hey, we're actually a great solution On the upside, when everyone's growing and changing and evolving, they hire, like, 10 people a week. Okay, we can give you space for those 10 people. We're also a great solution on the downside in the worst-case scenario where people don't know what their future holds and they need to, like— Downscale. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, and and what would be better for either, in either of those scenarios than being surrounded by a community of supportive people? Right. If you're on a downslide, who do you want to be around? People who are there to like, you know, p- yeah. put a shoulder around you say it's going to be okay. If you're on the upside, who do you want to be around? Other people who are like winning. celebrating your success and exactly. winning, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Just a reminder, innovation doesn't start with the beautiful groundbreaking thing. That's the result. The start of something amazing boils down to a mindset and a certain way of thinking that sparks everything. And oftentimes, that's actually counterintuitive to what's accepted. There's the art of noticing and an understanding of human behavior that informs what needs to change in order to make something better. More often than not, there's a level of naivete, and that saves you, actually, from sticking to the same old approach from the past. The concept of co-working spaces may be a no brainer today, but during its early days and even in the beginning, there was a lot of thought put into the business that was counter to what people like real estate developers wanted to hear. But if Miguel and Adam knew this going in, they might have talked themselves out of the business before they even got started. Maybe stubbornness was their saving grace here. After all, why go for a tenant with a model that's untested and high risk and lacking history? because maybe even they felt a shift in the culture starting to take place. Businesses were suffering from an economic downturn, and because of that, they needed to move their eggs away from just one basket. Miguel's critical entrepreneurial and design mind knew if they were going to change things and make an impact as a business, then what was done before needed to be thrown out the window and packaged as something not only new, but necessary for today. Although your story may be very different, Miguel's approach is fundamental for anyone trying to start or refine their business. Is there a need for what you want to offer? Will it greatly improve how things are being done today? Of all the people who are saying no to your idea, can you recognize why there is a change that needs to happen? For Miguel and Adam, they had to have answers for every critique people threw at them. And hopefully, when the day comes for your idea to be tested, you'll be ready with your answers as well. What did you go to school and study? I studied architecture at University of Oregon,
1: which Mm -hmm. I loved, um, really loved. Oh, Ducks? Really, yeah. The Ducks (laughs) women's basketball team actually this year, killing it. They're amazing right now. Um, Does does this mean you bleed Nike? Well, I grew up also (laughs) in Eugene. So I did grow up where Nike started. I, I, I grew up literally my babysitter in elementary school was the Nike store. Like, literally. Like, where I would go every <laughs> you would day just go to the school. Nike store and hang out? Yeah, because it was so <laughs> fascinating. There's this little store in this building called the Atrium in Eugene, and it was like it, you could it's see dope. the future being created at with yeah. all the releases. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I remember when the Air Revolution came out and there was this strobe light shining through the— through the, the, air soul. Bubble, yeah. the air bubble, I was like, that is, you know, And the Air Max, when it first came out with the window, like, and I remember the first Jordans, um, which I didn't, couldn't get, which I couldn't afford. The uh-huh. second Jordans that when they came out, that was when I literally saved up the entire year of <laughs> the hundred, hundred and ten. Um, <dope. laughs> maybe the first ones were a hundred and then the next year they jumped to 110, <laughs> I think. But, but yeah, I mean, and that, that was actually, so I could afford one pair per year. Right. Um, wow. I saved up all year to get that pair, and uh, they were Jordans in the start, and then I actually didn't like the design direction of Jordan 5, I think it was, Uh and I switched over to Air Max 180s um, because Charles Barkley Mm was— You know that was when his time of like I'm not a role model yeah. and all that and he was hot and so I loved the those and um but and then from there I diversified. But. Do you go crazy now that you have you can buy no. more? Really? No, no, no. Well, first of all, I wear size 16, so I can't go and buy all the cool shit, right? Which is very frustrating. <laughs> we usually stop at 13. 13 is the normal peak, mm-hmm. and then some stuff gets to 15. But right beyond 15, and that was actually my feet grew. I might even uh, be bigger than LeBron. What is? I don't know what LeBron wears. I'm not sure what LeBron wears, but I know that it's an it's it's beyond the natural range, right? Yeah, like yeah. so fifteen you get a certain collection <laughs> and it's tough because I've tried to like buy fifteens and be like I'll, I'll ju- try. I yeah, really yeah. want them. And my toes like hurt all day and I'm like fuck you know like <laughs> What a drag that I. You should start I, a
0: division at Nike that just makes exclusive hot shit for fifteen and above. I I love that idea. Like <laughs> Let's I make feel it like <laughs> it's
1: an underserved market for sure. <laughs> There's a lot of us out there. I promise. Okay, so after Oregon,
0: was it just straight to New York?
1: Uh, well, actually, so I finished school at Oregon. I went directly to Japan um, because I had a friend living there, and I was just like, when you have a friend
0: living in Japan, you should go visit yeah. him. And if you're and- a creative, you have to. Step foot in Japan,
1: yeah, and also it was like I had actually studied Japanese architecture in school, so I actually knew a lot of the historic stuff, which was cool. I wanted to see that, and then uh-huh. obviously there was a ton of like young, cool architects in Japan at the time, and a lot of like the seeds of really cool design happening there. So I went there afterwards, and with the intent of staying for a couple of weeks and then moving to New York. That okay. was my okay. that was my plan, hundred percent. I'd uh-huh. say I've saved up money for it. I got the whole thing in place, and I go there, and in the span of like the first couple of days, we had hatched a startup and that was just because of again a natural response to you're hanging out in Tokyo people start drinking a few beers and eventually people start coming over and saying hey Let's talk English together, you know? And then some of that becomes, well, what do these slang words mean? How Mm -hmm. we don't understand. And when we listen to music, which is big, there's things we don't get. So the famous thing that I've talked about before is like no scrubs, which, you know, when TLC was big (laughs) and that song was huge, everyone's like, what's a scrub? scrub? No one knows (laughs) what that is. I mean, it's, you know hard for even me to explain exactly. You need right. so much cultural context. But the point of is that when we saw that, we're like, well, there's got to be something there. So we started a business then, a community for people learning English as a second language that was cool. Wait, you started um, Urban Dictionary in Japan? Well, <laughs> was, uh, that would have been... That That, that would have been genius. That, <laughs> that was part of it, part of it. Right. But what we wanted to do was actually connect you to real people to get that explanation. Because okay. we felt like the thing that was happening there is they have Japanese teachers who can go look uh, for the sources, but they haven't felt it. Right? Yeah. They were Usually they came to the U.S. for three months or six months, but they're disconnected from the culture. So how do we connect you to the real live culture that's happening, mm-hmm. you know, as English is evolving? Right. right. So that was the business. Um, it turned out to be um, had to evolve over the years. It ended up, you know, being relatively successful. And it sold to a, a just actually a few years ago to a, a big language company. And oh, cool. um, and, it, and it's cool. I mean, it's still up there. Englishbaby.com. OK. Um, and, you know, whatever. But um, how many years did you spend in Japan then? Well, we left after like four months, uh and but and we built the business in Oregon, in Portland. Oh, okay. Um, but uh but we got the seed in there, Japan. there okay. in Japan. Yeah. All right. And then just what age was that about? Well, when we started that ballpark twenty five maybe.
0: And then how old were you when you started WeWork? Well, I moved to New York when I was thirty
1: in two thousand four. Wow. Wait, you moved to New York with the notion of WeWork? No, 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 no. No, I came here actually with, um, so I came to New York with the notion of getting back to architecture. Okay. Right. And when I, the first job I got just by chance was with a tiny architecture firm that was working on the American apparel projects. That's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, early in that experience of the American apparel rollout Mm -hmm. um, and expansion globally. And that was just sheer luck, um, to go through that like start retail startup yeah. process,
0: that was amazing. With, with Dove Charney at the helm,
1: yeah. So Dove was at the helm, and his one of his childhood friends, uh, Jordan Parnas, who had the they grew up in Montreal together, and literally their dads were like good friends. So and they went to school together. So uh, Dove hired Jordan to do their stores. Okay. And I happened, to, and I didn't barely know this at the time that it, this was going to happen because we're working on store like two or three. Mm-hmm. And um we didn't know that store two or three were yeah, five hundred or you know, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um but we were there at the time when it was we're trying to figure it all out. Uh-huh. And so we actually did a lot of what I would call like retail development. Yeah. And Dove was in and out of that process. But when he was in, it was basically like screaming at us to open stores (laughs) faster. You know, like um, I can picture that. Get that store open in a month. You know, I don't give a fuck about your life. Like, you know, which was great. That was a great environment to come up in. Uh Um, It wasn't architecture. It wasn't like what I had intended to do. Like, hey, I want to build museums. It was get shit done. That's it. It was hustle, straight hustle. And Dove was the king of the hustle. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think he built a great business. Obviously, there's a bunch of stuff that happened later. But in just what the business was trying to do, it was mm-hmm. a good thing. Manufacture in the U.S., treat the yeah. people who are making the clothes well. You know, there was good good things about that. So mm-hmm. I felt good. Um, being a part of that, yeah. Yeah, being a part of it and, and part of the growth there was, you know, I felt like I was a part of a moment in time that was meaningful. And then that was the community that we were in in Brooklyn where we, that's when we saw these people around us where we felt like, hey, wait a minute, like, all these cool people doing cool stuff, but they're so disconnected. There mm-hmm. literally is not a common area in the building for people to like, sounds dumb now, but like have a cup of coffee and like, yeah. you know, bump up against each other, right? right? And, right. That, and so that's what launched Green Desk, which was the first version, and then WeWork, which came after.
0: When you go through a journey in real time, sometimes every chapter and moment may seem independent, you move to a place, you meet people, you hop to a job, and you gain new experiences. When we hear Miguel talk about his story, starting in Oregon to what we know today as the Wii Company, we get reminded that every single step was in fact connected. This can be direct or indirect, from visiting Japan because of a strong inspiration in the country's architecture, to recognizing the importance of connecting people with language, to noticing that sense of disconnected community from working on the American apparel business to the idea of co-working spaces for WeWork. There was always something that inspired Miguel to have an eye on his next move. I mean, shoot, I'd even count his love for seeing Nike displays in Eugene, Oregon as something that might've sparked an early flame. There's always something that you could take from an experience, positive or negative. It may be cliche to say, but inspiration really is everywhere. It's just a matter of zeroing in on what you recognize and taking note of it. The filters on what Miguel focused on were consistent. It was entrepreneurship, design, and connecting with the community. Now these weren't his outright key identifiers either. They seemed to fall into place and made sense as he moved throughout his life journey. But no matter how difficult the road, he never saw the experiences as negatives, which is something I see so many young people do today. Hurdles are only negatives if you allow them to be. So after all of these WeWorks that you have now, do you still remember that first one? Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: I mean, the first one, which is in... Brooklyn? Manhattan. Well, we started Green Desk in Brooklyn, Uh but the first WeWork location was at Lafayette and Grand. Okay. Um, And that's a funny thing, too, just seeing how New York changes. Like Imagining 2010 at Lafayette and Grand... Mm -hmm it felt like a no man's land. Like we felt right. like we were in the middle of nowhere because it, like it was like this little... Still Chinatown,
0: Little Italy, like right hardcore. And,
1: yeah, and also in the kind of a dead zone there. Yeah. Like it just wasn't... If you think about where where your paths of travel through that neighborhood, it just wasn't really a place. Mm-hmm. It was kind of nothing around right. there because you're kind of on the edge and then you also have like that other Soho vibe that's flowing down but hadn't flowed yet. Yeah. Um, so I used uh, to live on top of Landmark Diner. Oh, no way. <laughs> so you you you're I know are very very you're familiar well, yeah. with it so at the time, it felt you know like we were choosing a building that was like a risk, but we couldn't get any other buildings uh-huh. um but that building is also amazing because it's uh very long and narrow, mm-hmm. so what was cool about it for for the way we were building stuff is that you know we wanted everyone to have great daylight, and so you have a building there that's basically a half a block long. And it's got tons of windows, yeah. and it's very, it's only, you know, I forget the dimension, but it's like 30 feet deep. Mm-hmm. So the long side has all the windows. Right. So it's like a long shoebox. Yeah, like, exactly. And yeah. so if you're a small entrepreneur who's, you know, barely, you know, got enough $500 a month to start your business and mm-hmm. you get a great, you know, window office in this yeah. cool Soho building, right? A you know, pretty good story. Yeah. Right? And then um, you build a community around that, and it, it had a great energy. And, yeah. you know, that building, while it, I still have like, You know, stress reaction to walking by it because it was so hard to get it (laughs) open. PTSD from (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So the other part, my son was born at the same time as that building. So I was like, you know, growing, we work and growing Quentin, my son, at the same time, and then they were both born at the same week, basically. So I I had a high level of um, intensity then, which is why I don't go by that
0: building very often. (laughs) Uh, That's it reverberates in like my heart. And And so that was thirty. You were thirty.
1: No. So at that time, 2010, I don't really, it's hard to keep track, but I moved to New York in 2004. I was 30. So six years later, I must've been 35, 36.
0: Wow. Something like that. It's crazy because most people, especially even in my generation of friends, they think starting a business past 30, it's way too late. Like it's over for me.
1: (laughs) I, I mean, it's funny. I had no sense of like risk at the time. Like I really didn't, I never thought about it. Like, I guess, you know, and I said this a lot of the time. I'm like, what's the worst thing can happen? I have to move back to Eugene, Oregon and like live with my mom. And I still feel <laughs> that way now. Like, I really think that if that's the downside scenario, it's not so bad. And I realize some other people maybe don't have that kind of support system. But to me, I was like, that's not that bad in the sense of trying something. I have no ego about it. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not, I never had a problem thinking like. Failure. Failure yeah. matters. You right. Know? It never part of the equation. It mm-hmm. just didn't ever become a thing that would keep me from doing it. and I also didn't care about like material things I mean for many people who moved to New York it's like you know I lived in like Bushwick in like a loft and I owned nothing you know I had like I moved here with like a duffel bag full of clothes and then you realize that's all you need uh. of course I've forgotten that now and I probably own way too much stuff but at, but point being it's like when you have that experience and you learn what that there's this base level of existence yeah I was fine with that. Right. Like I was like, I can eat dollar slice pizza. Like Right. As long as I could survive, I'm happy. Yeah, and I'm good. Exactly. Right. And right. I don't care. You know, age didn't really have anything to do with that story. Mm-hmm. I I had the friends. I already saw the friends in Portland who like bought their house, you know, worked in pharmaceuticals, like got married, got a big screen TV when they were 25. And I was just like, I, that is not a story I need to be a part of. Like, wow. that's not, that's I don't good. care about that stuff at it's all. It's hard to
0: avoid that trapping in New York City. Where, like, it's all about what you're rocking, what you're blinging, what you're driving, you know, like, where you live. So it's good to have that really grounded, I don't give a fuck attitude. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a good—I mean, I guess—I think that's true, except what we don't have here is, like, you can't—I mean, it's very hard to, like, have your apartment be a part of that equation, right? Like, you can externally represent, yes. but you might be living in this tiny space, and mm-hmm. I think— um, I think at some level, I agree with you. I dropped out of like being cool. Like when I came <laughs> here, um, and that's actually a big part of of how I think I was successful um, is because I just didn't care to like try to be a part of, of anything that was cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to do something that felt meaningful to me. So I actually didn't really drink for several years at the time because drinks were too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believed that money would would be more worthwhile, invested into things I wanted to start. Yeah, yeah. And it killed me to be, like, $6, $8 beers and, you know, $12, $14 cocktails. I was just like, that can't be worth it. Right. You know? Um. So, and and again, with, like, food, and I people make fun of me a lot, my family and stuff. I literally used to eat bread and then some topping I could get, like, either hummus yeah. or <laughs> some other thing I could dip it in. I Mayo. mean, for years. For years, that's wow. all I ate. An <laughs> occasional pizza. Yeah. But— but that's just what, I mean, that to me, that was like, um, and I didn't go to restaurants ever, like literally yeah. ever. And there's a great food scene all around. And I was just like, that'll come later. Mm-hmm. Like I can totally put that off because I'm trying to build something and I don't, I don't need to show up in the cool place or eat that latest food. And of course we didn't have the same level of social media Ooh, yeah. back to then. share all that stuff. So it was like, yeah. you didn't, maybe you didn't feel as left out cause you weren't snapping a photo and sharing it on Instagram right. or whatever, but. But I, but I really did. I dropped out of caring about any of that stuff.
0: So, so lesson to Hypebeast readers. Stop buying the shit you read about on Hypebeast and just get to work.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe that's not. Well, okay. I think there's a different way of that, which I would say also is that if you really. Uh, it, I also believe in expressing individuality and trying to mm-hmm. find like your authentic self in that yeah. equation. And I do think that like. I mean I've always been into design like mm-hmm. I love design and I want and I and I want to respect people who make cool, stuff, cool stuff by buying yeah. it right? right right so I do so in that way it's like my feeling would be like okay I'm I'm literally I'm not going to waste money on stuff that's stupid but I did buy stuff I really, really, really liked and I wanted to like own forever. Support. Yeah. You know? And, support, and I wanted yeah. to support the people right. who, who who made it. And that was actually something I learned. Um I, I think at one time one of an article I read about Rolex um at some point on a plane shifted my mindset about that. You know, it's like on one level I was like, Oh, Rolex, that's like so lame that someone would try to wear that as like a symbol of their success in life and like, you know, that materialism is so dumb and all that. Mm-hmm. And the article I read basically framed it as Rolex is one of the, like, peaks of humanity in the sense that the craftsmanship and the detail and the expression of, like, the perfection of our skills and, like, the pursuit of doing something amazing – is embodied in that Rolex. In thing, yeah. And you, by buying a Rolex, you're actually empowering those people who feel like that is their greatest human expression, right? right? So I still haven't bought a Rolex, but I'm just saying I've shifted my mindset towards <laughs> it somewhat <laughs> to just say that, like, it's not just about the bling. bling yeah. It's actually about supporting people. So that's the way I would look at it. Like, I wouldn't buy something for a bling factor, but I do buy stuff because I believe it's supporting a community of creators. I agree, 100%.
0: everyone out there listening, young or old 30 is never too late hell, no age is really too late. You can never clock when that great idea will stick or take off. What you might grind through in one decade might actually be setting you up for the next so whether you're 23 or 63 that grind is achievable it may look different depending on the person but we all know and recognize the hustle when we hear and see it. Miguel also touches on his outlook on money here his frugal mentality is common when you hear about entrepreneurs on their come up because literally every cent counts and how you spend it can honestly be make or break remember the recent episode where I interviewed Luke Tadashi of Bristol Studios he's still on his way up and killing it but his advice to his own younger self was to be more mindful of his spending there's one thing you're going to want to spend money on that I believe is important and that's time And I'm not talking about a time piece, but I'm talking about time with people, whether it's over dinners, drinks, or coffee. Now these can be expensive, especially in big cities, but I think spending money to make time to connect with friends and other business people over a bite, it's something I firmly believe has great upside value. You'd be surprised how much can come out of a simple meal. Now Miguel's Rolex point of reframing a purchase as an appreciation of someone's craftsmanship is actually really sound. Sometimes I see something that I definitely do not need, but I feel compelled to cast a vote of the creator's dedication to that craft. And a vote with your dollar is one of the strongest votes you can make. Okay, so now you're on this new horizon where it's it's the We Company. You've got WeWork locked down. You have We Live coming now, right, which is like housing basically mm-hmm. we grow is a school or like date like sort uh, of elementary parental. school and, and and a great community uh, uh but also coming soon to with more dimensions okay and then a store you're like you just opened a like a retail facing store in the city Made now. by we yeah, yeah that's amazing Tell me about the store. I think the listeners would be really interested I in that. I think the
1: store is still, we're still figuring it out, but the premise is that we have a lot of awesome creators within our community and mm-hmm. we would love to be able to empower them with retail outlets, especially, you know, if you imagine that we have hundreds of these stores around the world and they're both internal, you know, small markets inside of our, our buildings and they're also external to you know, they're public facing on the street. That, you know, how great would it be for someone who is coming up with a new product to have like immediate distribution and be able to like test market, get an audience for stuff, actually travel around and meet people, you know, yeah. uh, in the local community to, to promote. And so the idea of Made by We is really that, that there would be some level of consciousness to that, um, the people who are making those things. Uh, it's obviously trying to be supportive to that idea that Mm -hmm. creators can bring something good to the world. Um, But we also have one. So, you know, we're at the early stage of what that, what that will be. And, and, but it's a signal um, for us in terms of exploration to say, how can we be supportive? Mm -hmm. It's another dimension of being supportive to a community that we
0: appreciate and we would love to support. Yeah. And the dope thing about all of these different branches is that in this fully digital, like you live on your phone age, everything is very IRL. Like it's very just face to face. You have to talk to a human to use your services. Yeah,
1: and that's that's our positioning, <laughs> right? There have been other people who have been very successful approaching other dimensions yeah. of life. supposed <laughs> connection in life, <laughs> right? But there hasn't. There isn't really uh, someone who stands for that, you know, mm-hmm. who stands for the value of face to face. And it's not to say those other things aren't important. There are potential in other platforms, but if if our platform is real life, is face to face then uh, how can we leverage that to be as effective and as meaningful as we can be in expanding consciousness and getting people to, you know, open up both to themselves and also to others. And that's why I say we have so much room because not only are there so many more people we want to affect and more ways we want to affect, but also we have a lot more ways to like figure out what the conversation is. You Mm -hmm. know, like what happens when you bring together, for example, people who have opposing viewpoints and you put them side by side in a workspace right yeah and i mean we don't know exactly we've had some cases of it of say like lobbying groups in washington dc who are in the same building but have opposing viewpoints and yeah and we don't. this is all still speculation but it's like what role do we play in that Mm -hmm. like you know you can imagine that we could facilitate something that the world needs
0: you know in my meeting coming up to see you i took the elevator up it was a jam-packed elevator super packed There was everyone was talking, there was no English. There was Japanese, Chinese, and Portuguese all on top of each other. And I was like, where am I right now? This is so weird. Wow. Yeah, it was really, really cool. (laughs) That is
1: cool. (laughs) Yeah, and that's part of it too. I mean, it's interesting to enter other markets and see where are the Mm -hmm. social issues that, again, we don't know how exactly we're going to be a part of of the equation, but there isn't a lot of other places where this is happening. You know, like if you think about... Where do people get together in the world, not just for a night, but on a more regular basis where you build up that like neighborly friendliness where you could actually feel comfortable? You know, if I know you in a multi dimensional way, then we can talk about shit that mm-hmm. maybe is more real than if like all I know about you is like one thing. Yeah. You know, right. And, and that's, I'm never going to feel comfortable like, trying to step over the line if i only know you in one way because i don't know what you're going to think about it i've not experienced you enough yeah yeah but if we're side by side we're hanging out then i get comfortable like what do you think about this what do you Mm -hmm. think about that and that's what we need more of is people who know each other in a multidimensional way not like you're blue i'm red
0: yeah and that's the end of the story totally so right now i think if i'm not mistaken we work as the largest real estate holder in manhattan is that right I think, yeah, largest tenant, meaning we don't own all the real estate, but we're as a tenant, I think in that measure, we're the largest. Right. Is it crazy sometimes? Do you ever reflect back on where you came from, where like you were eating various slices of bread with different toppings to now looking at like numbers that are like eight, nine, ten digits and billion with a B? Like, do you ever it wasn't that long ago? Like, do you ever have trouble sort of like manifesting what happened in between? It's weird because you don't get, it's all like a flow, right? Is it? Yeah. Like you because, went from dollar slices to billion dollar valuation. Yeah, but not, <laughs> yeah, but not all at
1: once, right? Like that happened after, over time, yeah. right? So I can definitely remember the times. Like yeah. I can remember when we first got our, our first venture investment and I was managing the bank accounts. And I remember how bizarre it looked to have, <laughs> I forget the amount, but $85 million right. deposited like in the bank account. I'm like that's fucking crazy like that. And I actually, what's funny is I remember when we got to that valuation, uh, I had some friends in town and they were like something to the effect of like, wow, what are you going to do next? Like mm-hmm. they thought that was a retirement moment. Yeah, you crossed like, the finish you line. you made it. You're yeah, done. exactly. And that was such a weird <laughs> idea. I was like, whoa, I never, I'm but that's starting. actually, <laughs> if you think about it, like, and that's why it's weird at WeWork now. And I will, I agree. It's weird. It's like the depth, what it means to be, successful has definitely shifted. Like if I, if you would have asked me is a hundred million dollar valuation, a giant accomplishment back then, I would be like, yeah, that's incredible. Right. And then when you, when a, when a billion happened as a valuation, like, oh my God, that's outrageous. I can't believe we're a billion dollar company. Right. Yeah. But, but it's like, those all happened in a flow. They didn't happen like, wow, surprise. You know, they came from like hard work, dedication every single Mm -hmm. day. And so I think that now, you know, yes, it is weird that we're on a totally different spectrum of scale. Yeah. Yeah. But what I've learned, and this is not just about us, the hustle is the same. Like Mm -hmm. there's still, if you're still in it, like if you're still feeling like you want to build something, the hustle is the same. you still have to come back every day and keep trying. Yeah. You know, you don't. Maybe, again, if you if you have a different viewpoint of, like, I wanted to achieve some kind of financial standing and then I was going to go play golf for the mm-hmm. rest of my life, if that was your model, then I guess you could—maybe you you get somewhere. Like, you go, yeah. I did it. Right. I've never had a, like, I, I did, did it, it. <laughs> moment, you know? It yeah. feels still like there's so the much more hustle. to do. Yeah. you got to keep coming back and be like, what's
0: next? Right, you know? right. Keep it, pushing. Yeah. I mean, it must be crazy, though, like— you must still have normal friends that sort of are like, like I have normal friends that like, yo I just got a new job. It like pays $78,000 a year. It's so dope. And I, I have to be like, okay, I'm on your plane now. Got you. Like, that's amazing. And try to like understand it, you know, like (laughs) shifting gears. There are,
1: yeah, that, that I will say there's reality to that in the sense of, how do you not become a weirdo who like doesn't know the price of like a gallon of milk right or whatever yeah you know yeah because i've experienced that with people where i'm just like wow that person doesn't yeah. fit into reality anymore they've mm-hmm. somehow and for me i feel like i'm uh, i feel very much the same like i mm-hmm. still look at a coffee at starbucks and be like Six dollars is so expensive for a coffee drink. Like you're still considering a Rolex, (laughs) (laughs) right? Not even even a Rolex, dude. I'm (laughs) way lower in terms of the things that I buy. I don't have. I mean, I do live a very wonderful lifestyle, and I will say that for me, because I'm six foot eight, the greatest luxury that I've adopted is traveling in business class. And and I'm (laughs) and I mean and I feel I do feel weird about it. Like I do. There are lots of trips that I would take, you know, economy plus or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when I know that I'm going to need energy or I'm going to fly overnight or whatever. And business class tickets are really expensive. Like I still look at that and like we're we're buying some now. And I'm like, whoa, like really? (laughs) Like that's – people make less than that in a Uh month in the U.S. Right, on one ticket. Let alone – in the rest of the world that's a huge amount for yes. like a single airplane ticket, so i'm very in touch with this like I do not take it lightly um and i and I actually look at it in the way you said. I look at it for we have employees here, and I know their salaries mm-hmm. and I ask myself like, would I give that person a bonus if I was sitting in coach right mm-hmm. and th- so i'm I'm aware of that that's every cool. time i do I do not exist in some space where i'm just like. Oh yeah, Book I, the, pri- I exactly. Book the PJ right. I'm not there yet, um, <laughs> right. I, um. I, but at the same time, I will say I've flown private planes and it's fucking amazing. It is way better. It's way, 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 way better. It's way better, and so I don't begrudge anyone Noted. who's who's entered that space and has made that decision right. because it is so much better. And it's so fast. You just pull up to the airport, walk <laughs> through the terminal and you're on the plane and off the ground in mm-hmm. like seven minutes. Yeah,
0: it's like, it, it feels like when every second matters, like every minute matters, then it's like you could justify because those five or 30 minutes I waste on TSA could mean seven figures.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think if you get to that place and you really understand yourself and your patterns well enough, I can totally see the justification for it. There's also, you can be way more productive. Like we 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 know in the trips that I've, Um, flown on where we've had a a team that's actually highly focused we have no wi-fi and we're just really working Mm -hmm. for six hours on a plane right so i've experienced that and i totally respect it i believe in it i don't begrudge people who have made that move at all um i just am not there yet Mm -hmm. like i'm not there when i look at those amounts and i do the calculation i don't i can't do it yet i can't say that i won't someday but it's just it's not
0: me now Never lose touch and never stop moving forward. Two very important pieces of advice from Miguel that really go hand in hand with each other. It's easy to live in our own bubble and forget the world or the playing field that other peers and even friends are navigating through. There's a risk of not being able to relate with others, and that's a downfall. What's also troubling is if so much time was spent early on observing and recognizing a need for something... The moment you lose touch with what's really out there, you also lose the very thing that made you great. When you reach that prototypical quote-unquote I've made it moment, definitely take the time to celebrate, you deserve it. But know that the work that you put in getting there is also needed to keep it there and make it grow. As my previous guest Kevin Lyles put it, success is never owned, it's rented. And the rent is due every damn day. I want to talk quickly about partnerships as well. You have a co-founder. You have a partner. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs sort of weigh the pros and the cons of doing it on their own or doing it with like a co-founder. In your mind, what are the pros and the cons of now having a, a partner sort of tied to your hip for like the, the entire run of WeWork?
1: Well, first of all, my partnership was intentional in the sense that I knew what my deficiencies were. Which is? Well, it's evolved, but back then <laughs> you I was, deficiencies have evolved? Yeah, for sure. Oh, nice. I mean, I've gotten I've grown <laughs> yeah, over yeah. time for sure, but at the time I was very comfortable being in, you know, the back room for 12, 14, 16, 18, sometimes 24 hours a day just building stuff, mm-hmm. meaning like whether that's brand, whether that's websites, whether that's designs, whether that's literally doing you know, construction, painting walls, like that productivity back then, yeah. I was all in for it. Whether that was building business plans, doing, you know, uh, accounting and QuickBooks, whether that was do, doing leases. I did, mm-hmm. when I was working on American Apparel, I worked on tons of leases and I knew, I wasn't a lawyer, but I learned how to do leases. I would do the hard work, mm-hmm. whatever it takes. And I was so comfortable doing that under my own, like umbrella, domain, yeah. whatever. Like I didn't need to like, engage with the outside world okay. too much to do that. Um, and Adam, my partner, was, I mean, he couldn't sit still. Mm-hmm. Like, he was always in the outside world. Right. Always talking to people. Always making connections. And so if you look at it from just that simple way that we started we work. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that just needed to get done. Shit that needed to get done. Yeah. And there was a lot of things on that checklist you know, if Adam was in a room doing that, he wouldn't have been able to um, be out in the world Selling talking it, to every talking, yeah. landlord, talking to all the potential members, you know, trying to bring people in, building connections in the world for us. And so that binary in terms of like what each of us were responsible for um, was essential. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that was a great part, well, a great part of our partnership. The other part is that, you know, at the time I was also very reserved. People would say I was quiet. You know, I I wasn't like a person who was out in the like world a showman yeah exactly and adam is the opposite he's a great showman he's you know very good at like um connecting with people and mm-hmm. and definitely in the room with investors and bankers and stuff putting
0: on um, a great show so um are you better at the showman side now
1: well i think it's different i i don't define it as a showman but what i do believe is that i am i have found an authentic part of myself that loves to connect with people mm-hmm. And that can happen in a lot of different settings. But one of them is, you know, amongst a crowd or whatever it might be. So speaking at events or um, being the host uh, of convenings, that's something I really, really enjoy. And I've learned to
0: like show up in it in a way that I believe is very authentic to me. Um, It's obviously a massive success. Now, can you look back? What is one one of the biggest mistakes you've made? That's
1: a really tough one because we get asked, As an entrepreneur, I think you get asked that a lot. Mm -hmm. And I have not really framed things as mistakes primarily because I've always known in that construct of like having to come back tomorrow and give positive energy that there isn't really time to Mm -hmm. think of things as a mistake. You Mm -hmm. just have to go through them, learn something from it and keep pushing forward. So I... I never have a good answer to that. I know that there are things that we did as we grew the company that we could have done much better. And I think there are still things that we can do much better. But one of the things is that I think in the early days, we pushed really, really, really hard and we didn't quite know the ways to support people who were, who couldn't handle that, who struggled, you know, um with dealing with the nonstop. Yeah. And I think Adam and I both were nonstop people. We're capable of like working for whatever hours we're not sleeping. Mm -hmm. We didn't really know that not everyone is up for that Mm -hmm. and that people do need to find space um, for other things things, in their life. And, and And so when I look back on some of our early employees who didn't like last, they didn't make it through that. I sometimes think, well, what if, what if we could have been more aware of what they needed? And, and, um, and so that feels sometimes like there are some early people who I really like as humans and I've remained connected to. And it's sort of like, you know, it's sad that they're not along for the journey or that they, that they weren't able to be a part of it for longer. And that, so that feels tough sometimes. And I, and I know we put through people, like there was people who, who really struggled, like they had emotional, struggles because they were so dedicated and they worked so hard but they let other things slide in their life you know whether it was family or or their health or whatever it might be and so that's something that like if i was doing it again i would be more aware of that for Mm -hmm. sure
0: but it's very hard for the founder to put themselves into the non-founder seat because it's just it's you or nothing you've got all your chips on the table on it, and like everyone else is like bro i got I got to catch this Netflix thing when I get home. Like, (laughs) I don't care about your... Like, I care, but like, not to where you're going to take a bullet for it. Yeah,
1: well, I I don't know about that. Like, I agree with you on one sense. There are people, but there are also some who I believe become fully converted. You know, Mm -hmm. I do think there are some people who will take that bullet. And that's something that you have to look out for. Because if you do come up, if you have someone like that, that, you know, has that foundational connection to it then you should be really respectful that they that they may just by default give you their all mm-hmm. and still sometimes be you should that. tell yeah. them to like scale back a right, little bit right, right. you know like wow you look really tired or sad or whatever the thing that's going on maybe instead of just defaulting to work you know you need to go take that meditation class mm-hmm. or you need to like go home early or whatever it might be. Yeah. You should go watch the Netflix thing because there are people who aren't like that. There are, pe- there are plenty of people who just like default to work mm-hmm. yeah. and that can be tough.
0: Right, right. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice or even like now that you have a nine-year-old that's asking all these deep questions, what advice would you give yourself or your son about like how to make it in this world now?
1: I think that the most important thing that's different for me now is that I perceive it as a journey not a destination. Mm -hmm. And I think I had those moments definitely earlier on where I was like, it is going to be all about threshold conditions. Like it's going to be about getting to a certain point. And then that will feel like something like a sense of accomplishment. And I spent a lot of time when I was younger searching for those thresholds. I didn't know what they were for me because they were different than other people. Mm -hmm. So I know I didn't care, like I said before about like buying the house And the car, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know what my thresholds were, but I felt like I needed them. So I was like, what will be the threshold? So for me, for a long time, moving to New York was a threshold Mm -hmm. and I wanted to do it for many years. I got to New York and then I was like, oh shit, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. What's the next thing that's going to be the threshold that will make me feel fulfilled? Mm -hmm. Because I thought for a long time, I'm like, I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy but I want to move to, when well, I moved to New York, move to New York, and then as soon as I get there, everything will be perfect. Yeah. And then I got here and after the first, you know, month where it sunk in, I was here, then I was like walking around being like, oh shit, it's still normal life. I mm-hmm. still got to figure out what do I do with yeah. myself and with my energy. And I think, so that's, I think letting go of that idea that there's like, it's about hitting certain destination points and being much more like, this is just a flow for the rest of your life. Mm. Like you're. Once you're in it, and you your job is just to show up positively every day.
0: That's so you, all you can do. Have you successfully now removed threshold like markers in your life? Yeah, I mean it's just it's
1: easy to say that now because like you know you could imagine I reached mm-hmm. the ones that people w- yeah. would want you know from a whatever perspective. So and and I don't mean to say that like that there that there are not things to shoot for because mm-hmm. it does help to be like. Hey, you know, I want to get to a certain place, but, but for me, I just, the only thing that I, that I feel connected to repeatedly is that feeling of come back tomorrow and like give positive energy. That's the only thing that matters because it doesn't, whatever the context is, that's all you can do. And that's, and I remind myself of that all the time. Whenever I start getting more like existential or feeling like, you know, what does it all mean? Or like, when will I feel like I made it or all those other things? I just, I, I feel those things for sure. I still think like, when will it feel like it's true or whatever it might be? Or when will I feel fully realized as a human or all these other things? And I keep coming. And then I remind myself, you just got to keep bringing it Mm -hmm. positive energy, you know, every day and keep trying to show up with it in the best way you can. And that's just it. Like there's nothing more you can do. Like if you literally give yourself every day in a positive way, you know, you're good. You're good.
0: Yeah. You still having fun?
1: Oh my God, for sure. I I mean, I definitely have, um, struggles and things that I get overwhelmed by and I feel like, you know, wow, we're not doing enough. We're not doing it fast enough. We're not, you know, doing it the right way. But, um, I am really, really happy, like
0: really happy. Nice. All right. Thank you.
1: Thank you. That was fun.
0: Hey, thank you for listening to this episode with the incredibly successful yet humble entrepreneur, Miguel McKelvey of WeWork. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I personally use Anchor FM. Also, leave a comment and tell us what you think about the show. And tell a friend about the show. Social media, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. It all definitely helps to spread the word. We occasionally also answer listener questions on the show. So if you have a question, shoot it over on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Novetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers-Berry. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpera and Christina Hung. This episode was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location at the WeWork headquarters in New York City. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio.